Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peachtree Hoops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. We're recording on a Tuesday night. Uh, I have a very special guest, uh, the singular information, the singular source of information uh, for all things Hawks, uh, a kind and wonderful man, the managing editor of Peachtree Hoops, and, you know, honestly, one of my favorite guests on ATL and 29 is Chris Willis. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> Wait, that's that not Chris. That- that was a heck of an intro. I, I, I told it. I was I, I was told I was getting the managing editor. It's it's not Chris anymore. Uh, Chris retired. And listen, if you want to have Chris on, he'll probably come on. He doesn't watch basketball basketball anymore really at all. So he will probably be a great a great guest. Oh, he'll come talk about baseball with you. So we got Brad then. Hi. <laughs> I am, I am uh, here to talk about basketball with you. All right. So, uh, you know. Lloyd Pierce is uh, away from the team for a couple of days, and I guess the first question is, why is the internet such a cold, dark place in the year 2021? Man, I, I did lose a little bit of humani- uh, faith in humanity today when multiple people reported that Lloyd was away from the team, and a lot of the mentions and replies and quote tweets were like stuff about like firing Lloyd. It's like, guys... <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe take a minute to like let him celebrate the birth of his child before you have to like go crazy and talk about him being fired. I don't know. It's just one of those moments where I was like, all right, I get, I get it, guys. You guys are all upset with Lloyd, but maybe maybe just congratulate him on the birth of his child. That'd be cool. Yeah, I, I saw a number of tweets that said something to the effect of, uh, I hate Lloyd as a head coach, but uh, I hope the birth of his child goes well. <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, who's the target audience for this? Like... Are you trying to wish Lloyd well? If so, then maybe leave the first part out. Uh, if you want to express your sentiment on the coach, maybe you, know, maybe you don't have to wish him well. Like it, the, You really don't have to put both things in the same tweet. Yeah, that, that is a pretty interesting uh, confluence, we'll say. Just to make it a point to congratulate him while also crapping on him in the same tweet. <laughs> Is uh, It's quite interesting, and I actually saw multiple of those as well. You were not the only one that saw that, and it is pretty funny. Uh, okay, so we might as well start there since that seems to be what everybody wants to talk about with regard to the Hawks. And so uh, I was going to ask you for three, but that's probably pegging a number where you should pick the number. So I would ask you, uh, give me a criticism of Lloyd Pierce that's a legitimate one. Um. Okay. Uh, there, there, are, there are some. I think that... Okay, I'll start with, I think his challenges have been bad this year. Is that one that counts? Does that I think count that's a very experience? strong one. Yeah, I, I don't think he is good at challenging plays. And that's that's a very small part of the job. But uh, I think the evidence is such over a, a season and a half since they've had the challenge to where I think he's not very good at that. Which is not, again, not impactful necessarily at, on a grand scale. But every time, not every time, I'm saying most of the time, that's a pretty easy thing to evaluate too. I think most of decision-making from head coaches, uh, and I include myself in this as well, it's really hard to evaluate coaches. Um, I defer to people that are smarter than me, like your frequent guest, uh, Glenn Willis, who like knows X's and O's in a way that I do not. But one thing that I uh, I can critique pretty easily and with confidence is a, is a challenge, um, just between like time and score and impact, uh, high leverage, low leverage, whether it's winnable or not, all that stuff. I think. And what do you win? Like there are so many challenges that it's just like, well, if, if it's not a foul, you're going to get a jump ball at center court. It's 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a leverage thing, and that's not it's not again not the biggest deal in the world, but most coaches the strategy that they will use or that you would you, that you've heard discussed by NBA coaches when they're not in the heat of moment in the, in the moment is like we want to use these in high leverage plays or we want to use these for three shot fouls in the fourth quarter or whatever else. Like that's obviously the most high leverage call you can get basically is a right. three shot foul. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a pretty obvious one. Even in the first half, if it's, a, if it's a three shot foul that you're very convinced it's not a three shot foul or the other way around. Cool. Use your challenge at three points. I get it. But like if you're challenging anything else in the first half, it better be like for a real good reason <laughs> or in the third quarter, like you said, um, if your challenge is like two free throws or a jump ball, unless it's like with two minutes to go in the game, that probably is not a good idea. So that's just one of those things. It's overblown, but uh, I could say with confidence that I don't think Lloyd's very good at that. And I think there's a certain psychology too. Like if you're going to challenge a certain call from the refs, not only do you have to be right, but you have to, you have to know that there's not a gray area because there are certain calls where if there's a gray area, the referees don't want to accept the mea culpa and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to raise my hand and say, I screwed up. Um, it, it has to be really cut and dry. And I, I think too often he's challenging things that at best they're going to be in the gray area. And you might be able to squint and blur your eyes and and see it one way versus the other. But the referees aren't going to do that. Yeah, I think tw- I think at least twice that I can think of off the top of my head in the last couple of weeks, he's challenged a play that had basically, I would think, very little or no chance of being overturned, even if he was technically right. Like I've watched the play and I thought, look, look, that's probably a foul, or probably not a foul, depending on what he was thinking. I, I think he's in the right in terms of thinking the call was wrong, but it's right. also like you like you said, the context is important where you got to be able to win the challenge. And and combine it with leverage too. And uh, I think the one was it um, Monday night was there one with Solomon Hill. Was that the one before that? Where it was like I think the I, most I think recent it, one was the Solomon Hill. I think that was a foul. I think that was not a foul on Solomon Hill. Like objectively, that should not have been a foul on Solomon Hill. But like that's one of those plays where you're not you're just not going to win that one. I don't know. It's yeah. a, again, it's a it's a little thing. But since you asked me for a criticism, that is one that I can deliver with confidence. Because the rest of the you know a lot of the criticisms that we can probably get into. Um, are nuanced and nuance does not play well on the internet. So uh, who knows? That's fair enough. I mean, rotations and stuff like that. I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how far you want to get into this, but it's, okay. it's hard to critique. Like in a, in a, in a one-off game, I've, I, I will mention a rotational decision that I don't like every once in a while or a lineup that I don't like, but I think, and maybe you've seen this too. I think a lot of the discussion that I see on Twitter or other places just refers to kind of um, very broadly, like we don't like his rotations. And I'm, I'm always like, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm, and I'm curious half the time. I'm like, actually, I want to know what you're saying on this. Not just, not you specifically, but right. um, I want to know what the critique actually is, because is it like who plays with who? Is it, is it when Trey sits? <laughs> how is it when how Trey dare plays? you have a lineup that doesn't have Trey Young in it? Well, right. I mean, sometimes it really is that simple where like people want him to play 48 minutes a game. It's like, that's not going to work. I don't know. Uh, and I, I get it. And, and and the thing is that I will just say on your podcast right now is that I've kind of never once said in any form that I thought Lloyd was like a good NBA coach. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's not a ton of evidence that he is a very good NBA coach. I also don't think there's a ton of evidence that he's a bad NBA coach, if that makes sense. 
And that's like not a sexy answer at all. But when you consider all of the context and like what we can possibly know from the outside, even people like you and me that watch every minute of every game, it is hard to wait. I'm supposed to watch these games. Well, I guess, I guess that maybe not, maybe not you, Kevin, but no, I, I know you do, but it's really, it's really hard for even people like us to like actually fully analyze what a coach is going to be able to do. Um, there are things that are more obvious than others, like, like challenges, but with all the roster context, like I just think it's kind of incomplete and that's not a fun answer, nor was that one that pleases anyone, but I, I just don't, I'm not convinced that he's good and I'm not convinced that he's bad. And that's, people don't like to hear that, but because, and, and because I don't think he's bad, I often get accused of like defending him or being in the tank for Lloyd. And that's not really the case. I just don't think that we have evidence that he's bad. So I asked you for a criticism that was valid. What's a criticism that's invalid that you've seen bandied about? Ooh, uh, ooh, this is interesting. Um, let's, I think a lot of the rotation stuff is not, is not warranted. Like, and I'll, I will occasionally pick, pick apart a couple of them on Twitter and share them. Like for, here's one that I've seen recently. People get very mad when he sits Trey and John at the same time. Okay. And if you look at the numbers on that this year, actually, the Hawks are actually better off when they both sit than when one of them sits. Now, there, that's, there's probably some noise in there, but it's a pretty common thing that NBA head coaches do to pair their best players. I'm not saying it's always the right thing, but for me, John is not the kind of player that you can just task with carrying a unit on his own. So it does kind of make sense in some ways to pair him with Trey. And those lineups, when they play together, are so good that I'll, I will listen to you know, a thought about that. Maybe may not be the greatest idea, but a lot of it is just like, oh my gosh, how could you put a lineup out there that doesn't have Trey or John on the court? And that's just not, I mean, if you watch the rest of the league, that happens all the time. Like, it's not as if they are co-creators, like where it's very easy to stagger them, you know, as, I don't know, I'm trying to think if there's a better scenario like this. The Hawks only have this guy, but if the Hawks' number two best player was also a perimeter player, it'd be a pretty natural stagger in a lot of ways. Right. But that, that's just one for me, and that's just one example of it. But I, I think the broadly speaking, the rotational criticisms are not warranted. You can pick you could pick one or two that are at times. I think one, they, one that I would go with is that I, I agree with you that uh, you know John not being a perimeter player that it makes sense to optimize him by putting him with Dre. But at the same time, I I feel like there are too many bench lineups that are just stone cold. Uh, yeah dead in the water, not going to be able to score lineups. I, I agree. And a lot of that's injuries. I, I was going to say, that, that was my follow-up, was me like, the problem with that is he only has like six players right, <laughs> right now. But uh, I, I am with you. There have been too many like four bench lineups that just don't have a chance to score. And I think maybe maybe they're trying to lean on Gallinari a little bit too much to carry those lineups. and He's not ready, ready to do that necessarily. But right. I am with you. There have been a couple of no-hopers that are kind of indefensible, I think. Okay, good. Uh, kind of along those lines, and maybe switching switching gears a little bit. Uh, Wait, we're not going to do the I, entire hour on Lloyd Pierce. I, I hope love not. To. No, okay. I really don't want to do that. I don't. I don't either. So we can move on for sure. The fatigue. Um, <laughs> it is sudden. What's real with regard to Skylar Mays? Because I know that I've been pleased just because. You know, this this ties into the last thing we were just talking about. You know, some of the bench lineups 
you know, I just don't feel like they have a fair chance of scoring. They don't have enough Trey proxies. Um, there are a lot of good secondary creators on this team and not really that many good primary creators. Uh, and again, part of that's injury. I, I think it would look completely different if they had Bogdan Bogdanovich. Um, but I, I've been pleased by Skylar Mays just because uh, I feel like they have a lot of great complementary players who, who can do things shooting defensive, uh, sh- on shooting and defense like uh, Tony Snell and Solomon Hill. But those guys have to play off somebody. They have to have somebody breaking down a defense. Uh, just getting a defense in rotation or they're just going to get stagnant. And it feels like Skylar Mays can do some of those things. Uh, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you get in this territory with a guy like Mays or early in the season with that Nathan Knight performance where you might uh, expect too much from them. But I think that Skylar Mays has reps at a high level of college playing on the ball and creating in a way that helps you. He's comfortable in that role. He's not explosive at all. Like, that's something that was a knock on him coming in and you've seen I mean I think yeah, everybody he's can not see that. He's, he's not an explosive athlete but he is under control he is really skilled uh, he can shoot it he can pass like he's just a very polished guy for a rookie and part of that's being that he's pretty old but he's kind of ready to play as much as a second round rookie can be ready to play and your point there was an interesting one at the top of that um, I think part of the issue with the Hawks struggling without Trey uh, well there's, there's many parts of that issue but one of them is that it's really hard to run a system that is as centralized on Trey as it is for good reason, because Trey is really good at it. But having a backup that can run that system as a primary is really hard. And even if they had gotten the Rondo that they thought they were getting, which they have not gotten so far, he's um, not that he's not that guy. Like he, the passing is that way. He can run an offense for sure, but it's really hard to have a backup point guard that runs the same offense as Trey Young runs. <laughs> it's basically mm-hmm. what I want to say about that. It's right. just difficult. So and that's what's pleasing about Mays is that, I mean, he's obviously not that, but no. there's enough shooting and there's enough cognizance of where his, uh, where his playmakers are when he's doing stuff that, that it's pleasing. And I think the biggest thing is that I've, uh, this team without Hunter just doesn't have it, but he, he can go to the rim and finish through contact and they're kind of prayer finishes, but they're still significantly better than a lot of the creators on this team uh, right now. There are a lot of guys on the Hawks who, when they go to the rim, just bad shit's going to happen. And <laughs> I don't feel like that's true with Skylar Mays. I, I agree. He's not going to get you beat in a lot of ways. He may not win you quarters. He may not have explosive moments he obviously had the huge fourth quarter uh the other night against the spurs but i think and also it's interesting to me that they've used him as a backup point guard because he is not necessarily right. a point guard right like he he can do that but that's not what he was billed as that's not what they drafted him to be i don't think um but he's almost more um I don't, i'm not even sure what the word is like if i was drawing up a point guard to back up trey young it would not it would not be brandon goodwin and nope. i like brandon goodwin Right. But he's that's not the role that he probably is best in and the way the Hawks use all of their guards. He probably he's just more of an energy piece and he's good defensively and energetic and athletic, but he doesn't 
he's not gonna be the guy that runs your offense and like runs spread pick and roll and stuff like that it's not really what he does right. so they've kind of leaned in Mays' direction and i don't have a problem with that which is it's weird to say i made a point of saying this on my podcast the other day like the hawks were in an eight-man rotation on monday night in february in an nba game they were trying to win and skylar Mays was in the eight <laughs> Like who had who had that? You know what I mean? Like he was probably number what sixteen on the depth chart coming into the season in terms of like if everybody's healthy. They have seventeen guys. He and Nathan Knight are sixteen and seventeen in some order because they're two ways. And right. he was in the rotation, an eight man rotation in the game that mattered. So yeah, yeah, it's wild. All right. Uh, there's been a recent development. Uh, what do you think of doing video hits for your podcast? Oh man, uh, I really don't like it. Uh, I, I wasn't sure that was public public information. No, it's funny. I uh, not to go way into this, but they they've asked us to do these like minute long clips after games as like teasers for the podcast. That's smart though. They're, it they're is, catchy. It, it is smart. I I famously do not like to be uh, visual. I, I, it's not really my comfort zone to be uh, photographed or on video. I've done it a few times. You have shared my image multiple times on your Twitter account. That's fine. I'm not like in hiding, but I'm not comfortable on, on camera. So it's, I do it because I'm asked to, and uh, it's fine. It's uh, there, there was one the other night where uh, it was not fun to do. And for home games right now, uh, I know you're not going, but I have been, okay, I've been sometimes to the arena. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't imagine doing one of those in a mask in the arena. That would be <laughs> maybe maybe I'll have to at some point. But uh, normally, I, I mean. In pre-pandemic times, I record my podcast from the arena, and I can't right. do that right now. So it's all this weird stuff. But yes, I am on camera, and thank you for noticing. You're welcome. Uh, Riveting. Okay. Riveting so, <laughs> uh, go, going back to to where we kind of left off with Skylar Mays, we've got we I, 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 we as in us analyzing what's in front of us, not we as in hey, we the team need to do this <laughs> to win tonight. Yes. Um, because that happens way too much and it annoys the piss out of me. But um, Skylar Mays is one of uh, a, a too small group of players on the team that can drive to the basket and have something good when they get near the rim. Uh, it's him and Trey, a bunch of bad options. Uh, kind of a good option is Danilo Gallinari, but to get that to happen, he's going to have to do something with a first step. And I'm concerned about that first step at the moment. Uh, am I crazy? Oh, no, you're definitely not crazy. I think the theory of what they're having to do right now on that second unit is that they are they are leaning on Gallinari to create. And in theory, that makes sense, because like, that's part of the reason why they got him, was to help their second unit offense. Um, and he does do that. But at the moment, he is not moving well. That's that's what I will say in a kind, gentle way about Danilo, who is an older guy. He's 32. Um, but this is not the version of him that we saw even last year in Oklahoma City. He's not the athlete that he used to be by any stretch. Right. But even last year in Oklahoma City, he was moving a lot better than this. And that's I don't know if it's like. the yeah, I don't know if it's the it's the short offseason or the injury he had with the ankle or whatever it is or the age or all of that combined. But it's hard to throw him the ball right now. And like, listen, he can shoot over guys. We've seen that a few times already where he'll just like get a matchup and rise up and fire and make it. And he can do that. But in terms of like running your offense through him, 
it's harder to do that when he is not explosive at all. Like not that he's ever going to be mistaken for Derek Jones Jr., but he is uh, he's slower than usual at the moment. So getting separation, um, taking advantage, driving to the rim is tough. And then defensively, uh, it's probably even a bigger concern. So, I mean, I, I let's just say I agree with you. It's it's tough to have him initiate, especially in the way that they probably need him to right now with the way that he's moving. You mentioned the defense. Um, what What's the right way to sort of triage the same situation, but on the other end of the court? Like, it seemed like yesterday, at least in part, not, not 100%, but they were tailoring his minutes to get him guarding New Orleans Noel. Uh, yeah. New, or- New Orleans Noel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touching that one. Not doing it. Okay, fine, fine. Um, I laughed. That's all. Should I mean, what's the right way to, to, to deal with him defensively at the moment? Should they be doing that? Should they play him at five against non-shooters? Should they be trying to zone? Like, what, what should they be doing to try to get this to work? And, and I guess alternately, well, maybe I'll save it for the next question. Just, let's just stop there. And, and how do you make this work on defense with him being slow? I think it's matchup-based. Like, I think pairing him with Noel was a good idea because he's not going to burn you offensively. Like, he might crash the offensive glass on you, but they're not going to throw him the ball on ISO or no one's Noel. And that's that can work. The, I think the bigger problem is that if you play him at the five, presumably next to John or someone like John, your defense, your rear protection is okay if John is going to do John stuff on the backside. But Gallinari is just so limited right now that it makes it tough. And this isn't going to answer your question, but I'll come back to it. At the moment, Gallinari has the worst on-court defensive rating of any player on the Hawks. Mm-hmm. The Hawks giving up, giving up about 116 points for 100 possessions with him on the court. Mm-hmm. That is very bad. Um, and the and the eye test backs that up. And I think part of that is that it is really hard to build around him because if you play him with Clint, you have two guys. You know, Clint's reasonably mobile for a center, but you, you now have two guys who cannot really go out to the perimeter and contest a whole lot against smaller guards. That's tough. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Clint did a good job with with Randall. I thought like they made that adjustment. Yeah. Like he, you know. He's not really guarding a perimeter player, but he was he was chasing somebody who was who was a hot shooter, and I thought you know Capella kind of stretched his skill set a little bit last night in that regard. I mean they lost, but I I kind of liked the fact that he made it harder for Randall. Randall was so friggin' hot that it didn't matter, but like he did a good job guarding him. Yeah, and somebody asked me kind of I think in jest overnight last night um, who was faster between Gallinari and Capella, and my answer was Capella by a lot. Which oh, is sure. uh, that tells you all you need to know when your when your pure center is much quicker than the other guy. But yeah, and that's a question of quickness because like if you put like a hey let's run to the other end of the gym like Capella's fast. He's just not. Oh quick. yeah, he can run. He, he's not quick. Like he's not quick. Like quick, quick, quick twitch around the rim and stuff like that. Right. Like he can for a center, he's a pretty good athlete. But in terms of like comparing him to another guy, but I don't know schematically with Gallinari, it's almost night to night because they have to play him. That's one thing that. I've seen some pushback from Hawks fans. Like, why is he playing so much? And I, oh, I'm like, guys, yeah. they have to play him. Like, number yeah. one, they've invested so much in him. Number two, they have so many injuries. Yeah. They, not playing him is not an option at the moment. Um, so they got to kind of triage, like you said, and maybe you're playing some drop coverage with him on, with him on the floor, which is not ideal because he's not a great rim protector either. Right. Zone is interesting to me because since you brought it up. He will execute. 
that's the one positive thing about Gallinari's defense going back a couple years even is that he'll be in the right place. Uh, and zone can help you kind of hide a guy like that. I think the problem for me is if you're playing him with Trey, which you want to do on offense, it's really hard on defense, man. I mean, we knew that, but it's, we knew that already, but it's, yeah. it's, it's especially hard now without Hunter um, to make some make, make up for some of that too. So if you're playing, let's, let's just say, for example, you're playing a lineup that has Trey, Kevin Herter, Gallinari, and another big, like, Man, I don't know what you do. I mean, Clint, Clint can help a lot. He's been awesome on defense, but you're you're basically, you're basically never going to be able to construct a, a lineup right now with even Trey and Gallinari even by themselves. But Trey Gallinari and at least one other one other guy that's not a great defender, whether it's Herder, whether it's I don't even know Solomon Hill is okay, um, but they don't have the defensive personnel right now to hide Gallinari in the way they probably need to. So. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it really is schematic every night because if they have someone like Noel on the court, it becomes a little bit easier. But for instance, against Boston, if they're playing, I don't know, if they're playing Tatum and Bryant at the three and the four in the next few games, you, I, I guess you got to put them on Tice or Tristan Thompson and just hope they don't kill you on the glass. That's my guess, but who knows? Yeah, one thing that I'm concerned about that kind of relates to that, and, and I, I think you hit on the, the issue a little bit, is that okay? You're you're playing Gallinari at center, so if you're using John at the same time, then John's your power forward. You you really don't get you know the rim protection that you would get. I mean, I guess coming yeah. into the season, my visual was you can make Clint Capella and John Collins work because not only can you play them together some, and I think the pairing there has been really good, but you can stagger them. And John can do a lot of stuff for you as a backup center, as a small ball five. But it feels like they can't do small ball five stuff right now because he's playing with Gallinari. And, you know, he's not the small ball five. He's just a power forward again. And, you know, the further you get him from the rim, the the least, the less defensive impact that you get. And my question is, what can the Hawks do to be effective at small ball because it seems like that's something that's been good to them in the last couple of years that they've had John Collins and it doesn't seem like it's been all that good to them this year yeah I I agree um and the thing is for example if you're playing Collins at the five broadly the idea of that is to outscore the opponent on offense because as much as I think John has taken leaps and bounds defensively He's not a he's not a plus defender at the five. If right. he's playing, but the you five, can also do some switching. Correct, but the thing with that is you have to have personnel. So right now, I think they would have more success with John at the five if they had DeAndre Hunter, for example, as a <laughs> six eight, uh, rangy, big, physical defender. It's not just DeAndre Hunter, by the way, but right. they don't really have a proxy for that. Like even the other night, this is going to be this is going to sound crazy, but if they yeah. had Tony Snell. That would have helped a lot the last two games. For and sure. Tony Snell is not like a great player, but Tony Snell is six eight, six nine, and knows where to be, and can be a switch guy and be smart and all that stuff. And right now they're playing a lot of guys who are either really small, or they're not like super physical, like Kevin Herter, for instance, who I think's done decently on, de- on defense this year, but he's not going to be able to switch a ton. And Trey doesn't really switch very well. So, <laughs> I mean, 
it's personnel on some level, and then you throw and if you play Collins at the at the five, your four options at the moment are Gallo, who we who we just discussed, Solomon Hill, who is fine. I mean, I guess if you want to put defensive lineups out there, they kind of don't don't make it work on offense as much. So I guess my example would be the theory of John playing the five is to play awesome offense. But if you surround him with Tony Snell and Solomon Hill at the three and the four, that doesn't really juice your offense. Like those guys can make catch and shoot shots, but that takes away some of the, some of the juice of your offense. If you go, if you go all offense with, let's just say Trey, Kevin, pick your three, whether it's cam or Tony Snell, um, Gallinari and Collins, you should be able to score a lot with that group, but can you stop anybody? Probably not. So it's a pick your poison situation, which brings everything back to the injuries. And I'm not trying to say that over and over and over again, but that really is kind of, it limits your lineup flexibility. It really does. And that ends up with some groups that are not ideal. So I think I'm, I've always been a proponent of trying to use John at the five some. And if you do that, like you said, switching is a good way to get into it, but you need to have switching personnel and like Gallinard can't switch. So you can't play him with him necessarily. And trade is, and trade's not a switch guy either. It's just not ideal, Kevin. I'm not trying to paint a, a, a dark picture here, but it's kind of dark. <laughs> it's kind of dark. I mean, it's not like I'm itching or dying or, uh, to, to get these Collins at five lineups, but it just feels like something that you better have ready trying. for the end of games. Like it, Yeah. I know that there's been some outrage that Clint Capella hasn't been on the floor at the end of this game or that game, but that's what NBA teams do is that, you know, at the end of games, they want to have these switching lineups. They don't play their big centers. You're going to have to have guys that can get out to shooters. And I kind of want Collins at, at the five in, in those situations. And Hunter at four would be a great choice if he was healthy. Um, but when he's not, there's just, there's not a whole lot else you could do. I mean, I, I guess Solomon Hill would, would be the next best choice for that and uh, you know he's he's fine dicey. but he's not, it's not the same it's not the same thing and no, i mean the, the the biggest example of that conundrum that you talked about with not having clint play at the end of the game was that brooklyn game where there was so much outrage about capella not being on the floor in the fourth quarter and i thought it was just so easy to see why i mean i get it there is the argument of course that you could just try to bludgeon the other team with size Mm-hmm. But Capella is not someone that's, you're going to throw the ball to on offense. Like he can he, he can beat you up on the offensive glass for sure. But and he is mobile for a center. But there are just moments in the NBA in the modern NBA where teams are going to be playing small. And even Rudy Gobert at times is like out of place. And he's like the absolute yeah. number one archetype of that of that best possible version of that of that big time center. And he can't necessarily do everything at the end of a game right now. I mean, that, what did Rockets, you just say? I'm talking about like defensively. Like Rudy Gobert is like the number one example of a incredibly awesome seven foot traditional center defensive rim protector. And if you play him against the Rockets, like Did a Joel Embiid the playoffs, die? I'm talking about d- defense only. I mean, Gobert is awesome defensively. Yes, Embiid's really good too. And Embiid's better on offense for sure. I'm just saying as an example of Rudy. Okay. Because okay. it happened in the playoffs once where you remember those Rockets series where they kind of made Rudy look bad. No, that's because fair. I just Could, didn't think he was like the archetype. He's, I mean, he's like he's a multi-time defensive player of the year. That wasn't yeah. supposed to be a hot take, Kevin. No, I know. I just and B and B's really good too. I'm not saying that Embiid's like not as good. He's awesome as well. Yeah. Um, p- pick your traditional center. 
Embiid, the, I guess the, the counter argument would be Embiid is so good on offense that he actually can just bludgeon the other team, like throw him the ball go. and he will actually cook. Whereas Rudy or Clint are not going to do that to you. That's right. Okay. Fair. I got it now. I'm catching up. No, it's okay. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Often Capella is going to be the best option. Like against the Knicks, you can play Capella in the fourth quarter and they did. That was not a coincidence. They can play Capella against the Knicks, against Julius Randle, or against Taj Gibson or Nerlens Noel, and it's not a big deal. But if you're playing the Nets and they're playing KD at center or they're playing like Jeff Green at center, that's not as easy. Fair enough. Uh, what is, if 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 you're the general manager and you're trying to figure out, okay, uh oh, we're gonna bring in one kind of player, uh, trade deadline fringe deal uh but we're gonna get we're getting one guy that can do this one thing what are you out there trying to get uh this is gonna be a hedge but do i have deandre hunter healthy or bogdanovich healthy or neither or both because that that's really the thing like people ask me this question all the time and it's like i understand this by the way when the team is struggling you want to get in the trade machine and fix it i totally get that but the hawks are not going to do anything at the deadline that is going to be better than getting Bogdanovich and Hunter back. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, for sure. I, I think, I, th- I know you know that, but it's like, okay, if they have everybody healthy, there really isn't like a very obvious spot to grab an upgrade. I'm not saying that the Hawks are perfect when healthy, because they're not. But in terms of like position or role, they kind of have a player or two at every single role that you would want someone in. Um, I guess the one spot right now, and it, uh, just to win this season would be another center because it, they clearly do not have a lot of confidence in a Kongwu or Fernando right now. Right. And Lloyd kind of Lloyd, Lloyd almost said that like not in a derogatory way, but you heard it. I, I know you were in there with me, but he kind of made mention of a Kongwu not being a rotation player right now. And my, lo- my logical question was like, okay, who then who is because they don't have anybody that is in that backup center spot. So I guess if everybody's healthy on the entire roster, their weakest spot is probably backup center, but even then you have Collins and like you don't kind of, you don't kind of don't need backup center. And you have to play Gallinari at center at least on defense. That's what I mean. So they don't really have a spot. I guess maybe one more like hybrid forward that maybe is better than Solomon Hill. And I like Solomon Hill a lot. I'm just saying the theory of Solomon Hill this year was to be like the twelfth man who gave leadership, and now he's been having to he, he's played every game of the season because he's had to play. And they probably didn't expect that, I would imagine. So he's on a minimum. I mean, he was on a, he was on a non-guaranteed minimum contract, and he's been in the rotation the entire season. So maybe that's the spot. But I think the overall point is that if they are actually healthy all the way across, they kind of don't need anything. But if they're not, maybe it's like another ball handler. If Rondo's just not going to be a thing this year, maybe they need, maybe one more backcourt guy to be a ball handler. Maybe that's the one that I'll go with at the end of the day. Yeah, that's what I would have gone with, but... I just think practically, I, the okay, other one. I, got, I guess I'll ask you about this now uh, to flip, flip it back to you on, on your own podcast. Is there a world in which Rondo is healthy and does not play? In practical terms, not, not, not Kevin gets to the side terms in practical terms. Is there a world in which Rondo is available to play, but is not in the rotation? That's a key. That's a key question for me. Uh, probably not, but at the same time, you know, if they don't feel like he's giving the maximum effectiveness, then I think you can tailor it. I think that they, and I, I think they've you've seen some of this. I think you'll you'll see some situations where 
you know, you try him uh, at the top of the second quarter and you see how it goes. And if it goes well, then he plays the fourth quarter. And if it doesn't, then maybe you don't see him in the second half. Yeah. Um, I think they'll, they'll, they've, you know, something that they've done on a number of occasions. And you, you definitely, uh, you know, the thing that's holding him up right now is a back injury. Those, even when he comes back, that probably isn't something that just goes right away. So I think they'll be very careful. I think they'll like avoid every back to back and they'll, they'll find nights where it just doesn't make sense to play him given that he's 35 years old. Um, so no, I, I don't think you just see hit him go away, but I, I do think that if they don't feel like he's some indispensable piece, then you just use him sparingly and that that's pretty natural given his, his age and maturity at this point. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I think that's the other thing that I will point out is that the Hawks didn't really use Bogdanovich on the ball as much as I thought they were going to before he got injured. Right. I think they might rectify that when he comes back. Oh, I think they have to. Uh, just because, <laughs> you know, what I mean, to, to, to what we yeah. both just said about the perimeter, needing, needing another creator, that that is fixed. And I, thought, I mean, no, he was playing with Herter before, too. So it's, it's different right. now. If Herter's a starter, I mean, it's just apples and oranges, like. That's, yeah, that's the thing that's killing me about these bench lineups is now Herder's a starter and, and just everything changes because Herder is a really good playmaker. Like he is good with the ball in his hands. He played point guard in high school. You know, he's, he's tall and he has short arms. So if he's not careful, people are going to poke away his dribble. But like just in terms of angles and, you know, having a jump shot and knowing where to put the ball, uh, given the way the defense reacts, like he's going to be good at all of that and now that he's not doing it with the bench the bench has just gone to a place where they just die on offense yeah and going back to the theory of the original team when everybody was healthy one of the reasons why it was not as much of a concern with Trey off the court or with that secondary ball handling or even that primary ball handling is that you could throw Bogdanovich out there even with even even with Rondo or with Chris Dunn or whatever you wanted to do you had multiple guys that in theory could handle the ball and create a little bit and they didn't, they didn't really let Bogdanovich do a lot of that. And I'm not sure what that theory was, but I think they're going to have to try that more. I didn't love the run move when it happened. Uh, if he plays, they're going to use it. I mean, he has to be on the ball if he plays. That's kind of the thing about Rondo is that if he's out there, he's got to have the ball. <laughs> Otherwise, why is he out there? Um, so, yeah, I think I, I guess maybe at the end of the day, if it's not going to be Skylar Mays, uh, they need one more ball handler. But I, I'm hoping... If I'm if I'm the Hawks, I'm hoping desperately that it's Bogdanovich and nothing else uh, is needed to add in that spot. Fair enough. Uh, is is there anything that I should have asked you that I've forgotten to ask? Um, no, we could do another half hour on Pierce. No, I'm kidding. Um, I mean, I guess the rest of the uh, I guess I'll ask you the rest of the first half schedule. They are on the road a lot. They are on the road for like seven of the last yeah seven of the last nine. Um, the road doesn't matter as much as usual right now. Uh, there's lots of home court studies that say that home court does not mean as much as it usually does, but still when a team is struggling as much as the Hawks are right now, what you don't want to really see is seven out of the last night on, on the road, including against some pretty decent teams like Boston and Miami. Uh, I guess how worried are you about this stretch? Because as much as I am not a sky is falling guy and I am still not right now, the season could get away from them in, in the next 10 games. If they, if they don't, uh, fix it a little bit because like i'm not saying they have to go seven and two here but they can't go one and eight or they're in some trouble so 
uh, I guess I would say that I'm very worried because DeAndre Hunter is really good. And I think people have forgotten that. Like, he's not really bad at anything, I guess is the, the nice way to put it. Like, he's really good on offense. He's really good on defense. Um, he, you know, if, if you just said, okay, here's your Hawks roster, um, you know, plan it out for the next five years, what are you going to do? Like, if there's one name on the entire roster that is not going anywhere in that five-year period, if I'm in charge, it's DeAndre Hunter. Like, he's just, he's just it. He is good. Did, um, did you know? Did you notice the? And I, and I think you did because you tweeted it. If I remember right, did you notice that Nate McMillan said that he was playing the best basketball of anybody on the roster, and he did yeah, not qualify? I tweeted it. He, he, he did not qualify. qualify that. By the no. way, there was there and, was no like, except Trey Young in there. It was best. No. It was playing the best on the roster. Full stop. No. Like, like most of these players. I mean, you except take Rondo out of the picture, and some others. Uh, but you've largely got a roster that hasn't played playoff games. And I look at this roster and I'm thinking, man, you know, if 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 this team gets to a conference finals game, like who's going to be equipped to handle that crap? Like in my eyes, like DeAndre Hunter, like he's built for that. And I'm not sure that some of these other parts of this roster are, are built for that kind of action. And he is like he he's the he has the type of game that is going to translate to the playoffs from the regular season just perfectly. Um so, I mean, I just feel like it's really been undersold uh, how good he is. But to kind of flip it and, and take it back to where we were at the beginning, which we were talking about Lloyd Pierce. And yep. one thing that I wanted to mention with regard to Pierce, when we talk about, well, you know, how good is he? You look at this team this season, and they've been just decimated by injuries. And they're trying to figure it out. And they're struggling. But they're still miles better than they were last season. And why are they miles better than they were last season? Well, because DeAndre Hunter got better. Kevin Herter got better. John Collins, I know you're going to look, people are going to look at the numbers and say, eh, John Collins got better. Like, to, to be agree, able to I do agree. the things that he has done as a power forward next to a center like Clint Capella. Yeah, sure, his rebounding numbers went down. Big deal. He is immensely better than he was last year like the shot is there he's so much better defensively on the perimeter he's so much better defensively just in general he's engaged like his motor on defense uh, he, he got gassed a little bit at the end of the Knicks game but um, I mean his motor just goes and he's just a smarter defensive player he got better Trey Young is probably marginally better like the, the games where he gets it going like his shots going like he He's, he's more of a threat to, to have a meaningful 40-point game than than he was in passing. Not that he couldn't do it before, but just feels like he can do it more often. Like, if you don't trap him uh, and, and and junk up the defense to, to tilt it towards Trey Young, uh, he's going to carve you up. Like, I think, like, Trey Young got better. So, you've got all these broken pieces that are injured and pieces that are still trying to figure out their way. And those are the acquisitions. Those are the people that you know, got here midway last season like Capella or they got here in the offseason like a bunch of these other guys. The players that are the same, the players that have carried over from last season to this season all got better, and they're the reason that the Hawks have a better record now 
than they did last season. And the acquisitions is just kind of a big shrug at this point. So to say that Lloyd Pierce is somehow the reason that the Hawks aren't uh, 18-9 and just seems silly to me. Yeah, I mean, we're not allowed to say that on Twitter, uh, or we're just seen as apologists, but I I agree with pretty much all that. Uh, And the Hunter loss was just, it was bad timing. The Hawks, I don't think we're going to be like the four seed in the East, even if they were healthy necessarily. But at this moment in time, the Hawks are still plus five points per hundred possessions with Hunter on the court this this season. Like, it's not just Hunter, but he was, he's incredibly valuable and they had no replacement for him. It's, it's both things there. And they've been operating without four perimeter players at the same time and five on some nights when Tony Snell doesn't play. And you just can't paper over that. I know they've had young Collins and Capella and those are their, maybe their three best players uh, alongside Hunter, but it's, it's, it's hard to play with cluster injuries and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of everything. And Hunter was, breaking out in a way that is pretty uh pretty impressive and that by the way that's that's one thing that i would point to i'm not sure if it's you could credit pierce individually for this but the hawks have done very very well during his tenure with player development like you can say that full stop and i always want to i always want to credit players as well because the players are the ones doing the work and they have to be able to work and put the work in but if you look at the young guys i guess the only example in the la- of the last three classes that has not like jumped is cam reddish Mm-hmm. And even then, like you saw his progression during the season last year, he regressed a little bit, but I think there's some noise in there. And I also think that there's a pandemic and nobody to work with him in the off season and all that stuff in there as well. But I think the staff has to get some credit for all of the young guys with the exception of, I guess, like maybe Bruno and maybe cam developing at a high level. Like, you don't just, it's not just draft a guy and they just automatically get better. Is all I'll say about that. Bringing things full circle to what you asked me before. No, no, that's good. (laughs) Strengths and weaknesses. Listen, he's not, uh, Lloyd Pierce is not Eric Spolstra. I don't think, I don't think he's, I don't think he's Nick Nurse. I don't think he's an elite coach and that's not, that's not to be denigrating. I think we, we probably would have seen that at this point if he was actually going to be an elite coach, but I don't think he's Ryan Saunders either. Sorry, Ryan. Or Luke Walton or or Luke, or, or Luke Walton. My, uh, th- those are my go-to names for that, for bad coaches. My apologies to those guys. But. Oh, that's fine. And this isn't, I, I guess that's part of it too, is like, I'm surprised that across the NBA, well, I guess it kind of goes hand in hand. I'm, I'm like arguing with myself without actually saying the words. <laughs> I did. But I did like, the go back to the game that, that Dallas threw at the Hawks, which by the way, you know, Trey Young said something the other day in, in a game uh, where the Hawks got boat raced on defense, uh, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, we aren't prepared for some of the things that teams throw out there, which is kind of a, yeah, you know, a third rail quote that was used to tease some bullshit. Um, it made the rounds, and I mean, I get it. As soon as, of I, course, yeah, you, you know, and I, gets, you, you and I talked that night. As soon as he said that, it was like, well, that's going to make the rounds, and we knew right away. Right, and and again, that whole game, the reason they lost was about defense. And, and that was a quote for Trey for that night, talking about offense. And, you know, I think the thing that he was talking about there goes back to what happened in the Dallas game, which is that, yeah, the Hawks didn't look super prepared for the trapping defenses that they threw at Trey. Yep. Which, you know, in a pandemic season, I kind of get it. Like, you don't have the court time. You just don't have the court time to do everything that you want to do. Like, you've got to just get people to do the basic you know abc shit and then 
you know, the XYZ stuff, you, you just don't have the time to get there. And so I guess credit to the Mavs that they were able to implement that. I think continuity of roster over many years is helpful because they did the same thing last season and the season before that. You know, Maxi Kleber's been there forever. Dorian Finney-Smith has been there for forever. And so you have some continuity built in where it's not as hard to implement it. Um, but, I mean, it's hard to fault Pierce for that. I mean, I, I did they look like shit against Dallas? Yeah, kind of. But they just don't have the time to prepare for that stuff. At least that's the gut feeling that I have based on what I'm hearing about schedules and all that stuff. So anyways, I I think you're right. And I also, and I said this on my my podcast and I I feel unseemly saying, because I'm not even sure, you know, it's, it's hard to just explain coaches, coaches get the heat. When you lose seven out of eight games and you lose in the way they've lost a couple of these games, it is inevitable. And I don't get too bothered by it. Like if you blow a bunch of fourth quarter leads, people are going to blame the head coach. And I totally understand that. You could say that it's wrong, and I've mentioned it on certain games. Like, look, I don't think that was Pierce's fault or whatever. But if you look, take take a step back, I realize why a staff would get heat when you lose seven out of eight, including all these fourth quarters. I mean, aren't they still winless in close games this year? It's some crazy number. Like, that's the stuff where they haven't won a game by like fewer than eight points. Like every so, win yeah. is eight or more. That that's the kind of thing that even if it's anecdotal, even if it's coincidental, yeah. you're going to get heat as a head coach if that happens. And that's perfectly fair. Yeah, I mean, and I and I get I'm not and I'm not I'm not absolving it of, of it either because you can't ignore it on some level. So I don't want it's it's a it's a complicated thing. I just um, I think that there's always nuance and nuance is dead. So that's where I that's where I, I like the X and O stuff that that Lloyd Pierce has implemented on defense this season. Like I get the overall scheme, and I think that they're very good at it. And I don't yeah, know, the last, I, I mean they, they just been bad the last eight games. I mean the last eight games yeah. is what's really gotten them. I mean eight games ago. There were people calling for Lloyd Pierce's job on Twitter, but like no one, that was not a mainstream opinion eight games ago. And now it's like the world is ending because they're one and seven in the last eight. And that's just what happens. And in the NBA, coaches get fired. I mean, yeah. just no, to be honest, like, what, yeah. unless you're the absolute elite, elite of the elite, like your Rick Carlisle's or Eric Spolstra's that just have titles and they've stayed there forever or pop, like 90% of the coaches get fired. That's just what happens in the NBA. So yeah. they're usually the scapegoat at the end of the day. Yeah. It's a yeah. players' league and a GM's league, or whatever you want to say, and the coaches no, are usually the first guy, the first guy on the chopping block. So, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I look at the head coach, and you look at what he's had for two years, and he's had very young rosters for two seasons, and now he's got a pandemic for his third season, and I just don't feel like it's a valid criticism to say, hey, he didn't break out of box and one, and the four minute mark of the third <laughs> quarter because that really would have been the thing that would have you know tipped the scale it's just i don't know i don't feel like he's he's had the continuity of roster and the situation this season where that kind of stuff can happen but i don't know if somebody else has done it i i'd love to hear about it and maybe i should give it a second opinion but Listen, you know, I'm looking for the basic stuff. Do you get the basic stuff right? And uh... and this is something you and I can do that fans can't. But like, I've asked around, I've asked around the league about Lloyd. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not silly. I want to know what the reputation is around the league, and it's it's pretty solid. Like, no one thinks that Lloyd Pierce is bad as bad around the league that I've talked to. I'm sure maybe those people exist, and I just haven't talked to them. That's definitely within reason. But I've tried, especially like I would say actively the last few weeks to reach out to people that I know around the league, whether it's people that work for teams or in the media or whatever. And the opinion of Lloyd Pierce is generally like, 
in the middle, which is kind of what I expected. And he's on pop staff for Team USA, which I think they, that's a vote of confidence for him. Like, it's not like you just you don't just get anointed with that job. I'm not saying that you couldn't be a, a bad coach and have that job, but it's not one that you just get for no reason. Um, and he has a pretty good rep still, even with all what, what's happened in the last few years. The roster was as bad as it was, et cetera. So uh, I'm not saying he's good. And maybe we'll learn some more in the, in the near future. But the roster, man, I, I feel I don't want to almost say I feel bad. I don't feel bad necessarily, but it is such a tough environment to evaluate a head coach when the first two years they just had comical rota- uh, comical personnel flaws. And mm-hmm. then this year they have comical injuries. And it's like, all right, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Throw your hands up. I guess the biggest plus I would say to this point, and there are, there are plenty of legitimate nits to pick, but yes, you know, given what you what you've got, you're coming into his third season, Trey Young's third season. When he had DeAndre Hunter, they were good. He built a legitimate <laughs> NBA defense with Trey Young on the floor, and they were good. And they were a top ten defense, and with DeAndre on the floor, that yeah, they've been a top ten defense this year with. With Trey Young and often with Trey Young and one other shaky defender on the court, it wasn't. It's not like it's only Trey and awesome defenders elsewhere. Yes, right. they were built with. I think with, with Hunter Collins and Capella at the three, four, and five, that is very, very good personnel, mm-hmm. defensively. Yes, but it wasn't like he was playing with a. I mean, Kevin Herter is again, I think, fine largely, but not not a great defender. Bogdanovich, same thing. He's not great. Um, there are guys that he's been playing with beyond Trey that are not fantastic defensively and. They were pretty good defensively for the first yeah. whatever fifteen games. So, yeah, so I'm with you. That 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 that's a big one to me. So we'll see how all the other things shake out. But that left a lasting impression on me. Uh, I, I have right. to get you on the record now, Kevin. Last thing before before you can cut me off if you'd like. Uh, we talked about them being in God trouble. Damn, you're a tough host. Listen, I, I'm I'm just trying to. You you grilled me. I have to grill you back a little bit. Okay. And we we talked about this for a second, but they're eleven and sixteen now. What what would qualify as like a solid close to the first half of the season, knowing that Hunter's going to probably miss all of it and Bogdanovich might miss it all too? Um, can they? I mean, it's like four and five. I think four and five would be great the rest of the rest of the first half. That's just me. But uh, what do you think? I mean, I don't I don't want to put a too fine of a point on it, but like what what's not a disaster until the All Star break? That's a good question. Well. What's great and what's not a disaster? I mean, I think five and four would be great. I think three and six would be not a disaster. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, one and one and eight and two and seven would would be disasters. If they go one and eight, uh, they might have. I mean, I'm not a betting man. If they go one and eight, Lloyd might be in trouble at the Oscar break. Right. And he's not even going to be coached for what three of them? At least two. Yeah. I mean, they said. Uh, I know Sarah Spencer reported that Lloyd could be back on Sunday against Denver but he's gonna miss the first two for sure yeah. in Boston so and Boston's pretty good I mean Boston's not playing great they won tonight as we're talking right. on Tuesday but those are winnable games but they're still gonna be underdogs in both those games so we'll see yeah all right well thank you Brad uh thank you Kevin it's uh it's a treat to be able to get to do this I know I'm snarky and mean and brag on you a lot but I appreciate it uh, it's my pleasure. Maybe one day you and I will be in the same room again. It's been a calendar year now, basically. Um, but yeah. one day we will see each other again in person. But thank you for having me on the podcast. All right. Have a good one, Brad. You too.